chapter nineteen part three of supplements to the second book from the world as will and idea volume two by arthur schopenhauer translated by r b haldane and j kemp this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by expatriate in bangor maine chapter nineteen on the primacy of the will in self-consciousness part three five that the will is what is real and essential in man and the intellect only subordinate conditioned and produced is also to be seen in the fact that the latter can carry on its function with perfect purity and correctness only so long as the will is silent and pauses on the other hand the function of the intellect is disturbed by every observable excitement of the will and its result is falsified by the intermixture of the latter but the converse does not hold that the intellect should in the same way be a hindrance to the will thus the moon cannot shine when the sun is in the heavens but when the moon is in the heavens it does not prevent the sun from shining a great fright often deprives us of our senses to such an extent that we are petrified or else do the most absurd things for example when fire has broken out run right into the flames anger makes us no longer know what we do still less what we say zeal therefore called blind makes us incapable of weighing the arguments of others or even of seeking out and setting in order our own joy makes us inconsiderate reckless and foolhardy and desire acts almost in the same way fear prevents us from seeing and laying hold of the resources that are still present and often lie close beside us therefore for overcoming sudden dangers and also for fighting with opponents and enemies the most essential qualifications are coolness and presence of mind the former consists in the silence of the will so that the intellect can act the latter in the undisturbed activity of the intellect under the pressure of events acting on the will therefore the former is the condition of the latter and the two are nearly related they are seldom to be found and always only in a limited degree but they are of inestimable advantage because they permit the use of the intellect just at those times when we stand most in need of it and therefore confer decided superiority he who is without them only knows what he should have done or said when the opportunity has passed it is very appropriately said of him who is violently moved that is whose will is so strongly excited that it destroys the purity of the function of the intellect he is disarmed for the correct knowledge of the circumstances and relations is our defence and weapon in the conflict with things and with men in this sense balthasar gracian says es la passion enemiga declarada de la cordura passion is the declared enemy of prudence if now the intellect were not something completely different from the will but as has been hitherto supposed knowing and willing had the same root and were equally original functions of an absolutely simple nature then with the rousing and heightening of the will in which the emotion consists the intellect would necessarily also be heightened but as we have seen it is rather hindered and depressed by this whence the ancients called emotion animi perturbatio the intellect is really like the reflecting surface of water but the water itself is like the will whose disturbance therefore at once destroys the clearness of that mirror and the distinctness of its images the organism is the will itself is embodied will that is will objectively perceived in the brain 
therefore many of its functions such as respiration circulation secretion of bile and muscular power are heightened and accelerated by the pleasurable and in general the healthy emotions the intellect on the other hand is the mere function of the brain which is only nourished and supported by the organism as a parasite therefore every perturbation of the will and with it of the organism must disturb and paralyze the function of the brain which exists for itself and for no other wants than its own which are simply rest and nourishment but this disturbing influence of the activity of the will upon the intellect can be shown not only in the perturbations brought about by emotions but also in the many other more gradual and therefore more lasting falsifications of thought by our inclinations hope makes us regard what we wish and fear what we are apprehensive of as probable and near and both exaggerate their object plato according to elian v h thirteen twenty eight very beautifully called hope the dream of the waking its nature lies in this that the will when its servant the intellect is not able to produce what it wishes obliges it at least to picture it before it in general to undertake the role of comforter to appease its lord with fables as a nurse a child and so to dress these out that they gain an appearance of likelihood now in this the intellect must do violence to its own nature which aims at the truth for it compels it contrary to its own laws to regard as true things which are neither true nor probable and often scarcely possible only in order to appease quiet and send to sleep for a while the restless and unmanageable will here we see clearly who is master and who is servant many may well have observed that if a matter which is of importance to them may turn out in several different ways and they have brought all of these into one disjunctive judgment which in their opinion is complete the actual result is yet quite another and one wholly unexpected by them but perhaps they will not have considered this that this result was then almost always the one which was unfavourable to them the explanation of this is that while their intellect intended to survey the possibilities completely the worst of all remained quite invisible to it because the will as it were covered it with its hand that is it so mastered the intellect that it was quite incapable of glancing at the worst case of all although since it actually came to pass this was also the most probable case yet in very melancholy dispositions or in those that have become prudent through experience like this the process is reversed for here apprehension plays the part which was formerly played by hope the first appearance of danger throws them into groundless anxiety if the intellect begins to investigate the matter it is rejected as incompetent nay as a deceitful sophist because the heart is to be believed whose fears are now actually allowed to pass for arguments as to the reality and greatness of the danger so then the intellect dare make no search for good reasons on the other side which if left to itself it would soon recognize but is obliged at once to picture to them the most unfortunate issue even if it itself can scarcely think this issue possible such as we know is false yet dread in sooth because the worst is ever nearest truth byron lara chapter one love and hate falsify our judgment entirely in our enemies we see nothing but faults in our loved ones nothing but excellences and even their faults appear to us amiable our interest of whatever kind it may be exercises a like secret power over our judgment 
what is in conformity with it at once seems to us fair just and reasonable what runs contrary to it presents itself to us in perfect seriousness as unjust and outrageous or injudicious and absurd hence so many prejudices of position profession nationality sect and religion a conceived hypothesis gives us lynx eyes for all that confirms it and makes us blind to all that contradicts it what is opposed to our party our plan our wish our hope we often cannot comprehend and grasp at all while it is clear to every one else but what is favourable to these on the other hand strikes our eye from afar what the heart opposes the head will not admit we firmly retain many errors all through life and take care never to examine their ground merely from a fear of which we ourselves are conscious that we might make the discovery that we had so long believed and so often asserted what is false thus then is the intellect daily befooled and corrupted by the impositions of inclination this has been very beautifully expressed by bacon of verulam in the words intellectus luminis sicci non est sid recipit infusionem a voluntate et affectibus id quod generat ad quod vult scientias quod enim mavult homo id potius credit in numeris modis isque interdum imperceptibilibus affectus intellectum imbuit et inficit clearly it is also this that opposes all new fundamental opinions in the sciences and all refutations of sanctioned errors for one will not easily see the truth of that which convicts one of incredible want of thought it is explicable on this ground alone that the truths of goethe's doctrine of colours which are so clear and simple are still denied by the physicists and thus goethe himself has had to learn what a much harder position one has if one promises men instruction than if one promises them amusement hence it is much more fortunate to be born a poet than a philosopher but the more obstinately an error was held by the other side the more shameful does the conviction afterwards become in the case of an overthrown system as in the case of a conquered army the most prudent is he who first runs away from it a trifling and absurd but striking example of that mysterious and immediate power which the will exercises over the intellect is the fact that in doing accounts we make mistakes much oftener in our own favour than to our disadvantage and this without the slightest dishonest intention merely from the unconscious tendency to diminish our debit and increase our credit lastly the fact is also in point here that when advice is given the slightest aim or purpose of the adviser generally outweighs his insight however great it may be therefore we dare not assume that he speaks from the latter when we suspect the existence of the former how little perfect sincerity is to be expected even from otherwise honest persons whenever their interests are in any way concerned we can gather from the fact that we so often deceive ourselves when hope bribes us or fear befools us or suspicion torments us or vanity flatters us or an hypothesis blinds us or a small aim which is close at hand injures a greater but more distant one for in this we see the direct and unconscious disadvantageous influence of the will upon knowledge accordingly it ought not to surprise us if in asking advice the will of the person asked directly dictates the answer even before the question could penetrate to the forum of his judgment 
i wish in a single word to point out here what will be fully explained in the following book that the most perfect knowledge thus the purely objective comprehension of the world that is the comprehension of genius is conditioned by a silence of the will so profound that while it lasts even the individuality vanishes from consciousness and the man remains as the pure subject of knowing which is the correlative of the idea the disturbing influence of the will upon the intellect which is proved by all these phenomena and on the other hand the weakness and frailty of the latter on account of which it is incapable of working rightly whenever the will is in any way moved gives us then another proof that the will is the radical part of our nature and acts with original power while the intellect as adventitious and in many ways conditioned can only act in a subordinate and conditional manner there is no direct disturbance of the will by the intellect corresponding to the disturbance and clouding of knowledge by the will that has been shown indeed we cannot well conceive such a thing no one will wish to construe as such the fact that motives wrongly taken up lead the will astray for this is a fault of the intellect in its own function which is committed quite within its own province and the influence of which upon the will is entirely indirect it would be plausible to attribute irresolution to this for in its case through the conflict of the motives which the intellect presents to the will the latter is brought to a standstill thus is hindered but when we consider it more closely it becomes very clear that the cause of this hindrance does not lie in the activity of the intellect as such but entirely in external objects which are brought about by it for in this case they stand in precisely such a relation to the will which is here interested that they draw it with nearly equal strength in different directions this real cause merely acts through the intellect as the medium of motives though certainly under the assumption that it is keen enough to comprehend the objects in their manifold relations irresolution as a trait of character is just as much conditioned by qualities of the will as of the intellect it is certainly not peculiar to exceedingly limited minds for their weak understanding does not allow them to discover such manifold qualities and relations in things and moreover is so little fitted for the exertion of reflection and pondering these and then the probable consequences of each step that they rather decide at once according to the first impression or according to some simple rule of conduct the converse of this occurs in the case of persons of considerable understanding therefore whenever such persons also possess a tender care for their own well-being that is a very sensitive egoism which constantly desires to come off well and always to be safe this introduces a certain anxiety at every step and thereby irresolution this quality therefore indicates throughout not a want of understanding but a want of courage yet very eminent minds survey the relations and their probable developments with such rapidity and certainty that if they are only supported by some courage they thereby acquire that quick decision and resolution that fits them to play an important part in the affairs of the world if time and circumstances afford them the opportunity the only decided direct restriction and disturbance which the will can suffer from the intellect as such may indeed be the quite exceptional one which is the consequence of an abnormally preponderating development of the intellect thus of that high endowment which has been defined as genius this is decidedly a hindrance to the energy of the character and consequently to the power of action hence it is not the really great minds that make historical characters 
because they are capable of bridling and ruling the mass of men and carrying out the affairs of the world but for this persons of much less capacity of mind are qualified when they have great firmness decision and persistency of will such as is quite inconsistent with very high intelligence accordingly where this very high intelligence exists we actually have a case in which the intellect directly restricts the will six in opposition to the hindrances and restrictions which it has been shown the intellect suffers from the will i wish now to show in a few examples how conversely the functions of the intellect are sometimes aided and heightened by the incitement and spur of the will so that in this also we may recognize the primary nature of the one and the secondary nature of the other and it may become clear that the intellect stands to the will in the relation of a tool a motive which affects us strongly such as a yearning desire or a pressing need sometimes raises the intellect to a degree of which we had not previously believed it capable difficult circumstances which impose upon us the necessity of certain achievements develop entirely new talents in us the germs of which were hidden from us and for which we did not credit ourselves with any capacity the understanding of the stupidest man becomes keen when objects are in question that closely concern his wishes he now observes weighs and distinguishes with the greatest delicacy even the smallest circumstances that have reference to his wishes or fears this has much to do with the cunning of half-witted persons which is often remarked with surprise on this account isaiah rightly says vexatio dat intellectum which is therefore also used as a proverb akin to it is the german proverb die not ist die mutter der kunste necessity is the mother of the arts when however the fine arts are to be accepted because the heart of every one of their works that is the conception must proceed from a perfectly willless and only thereby purely objective perception if they are to be genuine even the understanding of the brutes is increased considerably by necessity so that in cases of difficulty they accomplish things at which we are astonished for example they almost all calculate that it is safer not to run away when they believe they are not seen therefore the hare lies still in the furrow of the field and lets the sportsman pass close to it insects when they cannot escape pretend to be dead etc we may obtain a fuller knowledge of this influence from the special history of the self-education of the wolf under the spur of the great difficulty of its position in civilized europe it is to be found in the second letter of Leroy's excellent book lettre sur l'intelligence et la perfectibilité des animaux immediately afterwards in the third letter there follows the high school of the fox which in an equally difficult position has far less physical strength in its case however this is made up for by great understanding yet only through the constant struggle with want on the one hand and danger on the other thus under the spur of the will does it attain that high degree of cunning which distinguishes it especially in old age in all these enhancements of the intellect the will plays the part of a rider who with the spur urges the horse beyond the natural measure of its strength in the same way the memory is enhanced through the pressure of the will even if it is otherwise weak it preserves perfectly what has value for the ruling passion the lover forgets no opportunity favourable to him the ambitious man forgets no circumstance that can forward his plans the avaricious man never forgets the loss he has suffered the proud man never forgets an injury to his honour 
the vain man remembers every word of praise and the most trifling distinction that falls to his lot and this also extends to the brutes the horse stops at the inn where once long ago it was fed dogs have an excellent memory for all occasions times and places that have afforded them choice morsels and foxes for the different hiding-places in which they have stored their plunder self-consideration affords opportunity for finer observations in this regard sometimes through an interruption it has entirely escaped me what i have just been thinking about or even what news i have just heard now if the matter had in any way even the most distant personal interest the after-feeling of the impression which it made upon the will has remained i am still quite conscious how far it affected me agreeably or disagreeably and also of the special manner in which this happened whether even in the slightest degree it vexed me or made me anxious or irritated me or depressed me or produced the opposite of these affections thus the mere relation of the thing to my will is retained in the memory after the thing itself has vanished and this often becomes the clue to lead us back to the thing itself the sight of a man sometimes affects us in an analogous manner for we remember merely in general that we have had something to do with him yet without knowing where when or what it was or who he is but the sight of him still recalls pretty accurately the feeling which our dealings with him excited in us whether it was agreeable or disagreeable and also in what degree and in what way thus our memory has preserved only the response of the will and not that which called it forth we might call what lies at the foundation of this process the memory of the heart it is much more intimate than that of the head yet at bottom the connection of the two is so far-reaching that if we reflect deeply upon the matter we will arrive at the conclusion that memory in general requires the support of a will as a connecting point or rather as a thread upon which the memories can range themselves and which holds them firmly together or that the will is as it were the ground to which the individual memories cleave and without which they could not last and that therefore in a pure intelligence that in, in a merely knowing and absolutely willless being a memory cannot well be conceived accordingly the improvement of the memory under the spur of the ruling passion which has been shown above is only the higher degree of that which takes place in all retention and recollection for its basis and condition is always the will thus in all this also it becomes clear how very much more essential to us the will is than the intellect the following facts may also serve to confirm this end of chapter nineteen part three recording by expatriate in bangor maine